Well, believe it or not, we are starting a new chapter in our study of the book of Romans, moving through our study, beginning this morning in chapter 3. And if you have a copy of God's Word uh, near you, certainly in the pew, or your own copy, please have it open as we prepare to read God's Word. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to review everything we've studied in the previous chapters except to give you this general summary, which I think is helpful as we begin our study of chapter 3. Paul rejoices in, we know, rejoices in and delights in and is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, we ask salvation from what? From the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, as well as wrath that will be revealed finally at the end of the age. For Gentiles, the nations, and also for Jews, despite the Jews' claims to special privileges and believing themselves to be in special relationship with God through the law or even trusting in their circumcision, Paul says in these chapters, all are without excuse before God. He will render to each one according to his works, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul will now conclude this argument, which is in the first section of Romans, chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, where he will be showing God's righteous judgment against all mankind for their sins. The whole world, he will say, is accountable to God. In Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, we have the introduction to this, but really it's a connecting a connection to the previous chapter. We'll talk about that in a moment where he deals and answers some questions and some accusations, really. But that's our focus this morning, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please stand as we hear the word of God read. And give your careful attention to it, for it is the very word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, un does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let us pray. Our Father, as we rightly note, all flesh, all of us human beings, and all our loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
This is your word, O God. You have delivered this word to us. The oracles, the spoken word of God given to us, entrusted to us. Bless it then, we pray, to our hearing and growth in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I trust you will remember last time, last Sunday evening, that the Apostle Paul utterly destroyed the deeply rooted belief of the religious Jew in his own day that said circumcision placed him in a special relationship with God, a sign of the covenant after all, and some places in the Bible called the covenant itself. And that meant that he will not be treated like the Gentiles, who did not obviously bear that sign in their bodies and were also, as Paul himself said, guilty of all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness in chapter 1. Now that was the argument of the Jew in Paul's day. And it would have been, we noted, Paul's argument as well prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. Now in chapter 3, as he's winding down his argument regarding all being guilty before God, He again anticipates several arguments and responses that his opponents will make, particularly the Jews, the religious Jews of his day. Now, these are either questions that he has actually already heard uh, spoken by some who are already objecting to what he is saying. Look at verse 8. He says, some people are slanderously charging us that we teach a certain teaching. Or they are questions that he himself, being a wise man, is anticipating that his enemies and those who would criticize him would have. Now, this can be a very, of course, helpful tool for us in dealing with those who are opposed to the gospel. That as you speak with them, it is very wise for us to begin to anticipate as we have more and more conversations what they might say in response to the responses we will give them. So that in anticipating that, we can address the issues head on rather than wait for those uh, complaints or those disagreements to be expressed. To take away their ability to find error or fault with what we are saying. Now, these first eight verses of chapter 3 proceed from one question to the next, showing the Apostle Paul's thoroughness in laying out his argument and cutting down the opposition before they can even make it. So thoroughly does he know and understand these things. And so for our sake this morning and for the sake of time, we're just going to move very quickly through the arguments themselves as Paul lays them out. And, and I hope that as I do this, you'll understand his flow of thought. Because each argument that proceeds is based on the argument that precedes it. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2, which contain the question of the Jews' advantage. The question of the Jews' advantage. Now, again, I will remind you that what Paul does here in the opening chapters, he's going to do more thoroughly in chapters later on in Romans. In fact, Romans 9 through 11, he deals very exhaustively with the advantages of the Jews, as well as God's purpose in everything that he has done throughout history regarding Jews and Gentiles together. So we'll wait for Paul's more thorough explanation. 
But here the question is simply this. What advantage has the Jew? And what is the value of circumcision? Well, you can understand what this question anticipates. And as Paul wrote in chapter 2, he's destroyed the, the Jews, the religious Jews' tendency to believe that their circumcision and being circumcised and having the sign of the covenant in some way protects him from God's judgment on the last day. And Paul obliterates that, that understanding. He says that's impossible because actually you're not living in accordance with what circumcision really means, which is, of course, the circumcision of the heart, a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. You're not obeying God, which is what circumcision represents, God giving us a new heart. And so the question is, is an obvious one, isn't it? Well, if circumcision, which is so important, and it is, even in the previous chapter, he says it's of great importance, but it has to be combined with obedience to the law of God. If circumcision is so important, why does it seem that Paul now is saying, well, it's insignificant, it doesn't matter at all? Well, Paul says here, no, no, there is something about circumcision which is important and valuable. He'll talk a little bit more about that. But he says, no, no, listen, the Jew does have an advantage. He has a great advantage. Then this is how he puts it. Much in every way, he says, verse 2, to begin with, the ESV translation, in the first place, some versions say, I, I think the better understanding of this is to say chiefly, because he's only giving one advantage. Again, chapter 9 will give several. This just gives one, and it is the chief and highest example of their privilege. And what is it? To begin with, or chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word oracles literally means God's speech. You think of how God related to the prophets, to Moses himself. You think of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 about the word of God being that which he breathes out. This is God's speech, his talking. You go back to Exodus chapter 33. Towards the end of that great book, we have this statement about Moses. He created, you'll remember, he set up a tent of meeting, he called it. It was set outside of the camp itself or outside of, away from the people. It was the place that Moses would go to meet with God. And this is how it's recorded. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses and when all of the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, this, no doubt, is what Paul has in mind when he uses this broad term, the oracles of God, God speaking his word. He did it on the mountain when he gave Moses the law before the people. He did it through the prophets as he spoke through the prophets to the people. And Paul says that, no, no, the Jew has every great advantage, the chief of which is this. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. 
You may ask, what's Paul's view of the Old Testament? Well, here's his view of the Old Testament. He views the Old Testament as the word of God, the very words of God spoken by God to men, written down for his people, entrusted to them for safekeeping, for proclamation to the nations, and for obedience in all that God has commanded them. This is a wonderful privilege, a great and high privilege that the people of the Old Covenant, the Jews of whom Paul is speaking, has a great advantage over all the nations around them. God only chose to speak this way to the Jewish nation, the smallest of all the nations, because he loved them. And he revealed himself to them through speech, through words, through the oracles, that he has entrusted to them. Now, perhaps you can see where I would go with this, especially in our own day. What does that have to do with us? Well, we've just finished not so long ago our study in the book of Jude, where we have been reminded of our great advantage as New Testament believers that God has delivered unto us his words. His very word, both Old and New Testament, have been delivered to us. Remember Jude's opening statement. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We noted in that study that the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is not a belief. It is not the act of believing, but the faith is a reference to the word of God. The words or the oracle of God, that body of truth that he has committed, delivered, entrusted to us as believers in the Old and New Testament, which Jude then says is the means by which we stand against ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into licentiousness or sensuality and who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this word we know is entrusted to, I think, first of all, ministers of the gospel. Uh, we are called ministers of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And as ministers of the gospel, we have a great privilege and an extremely high accountability to God to be faithful to everything that God has revealed, committed, entrusted to our charge and our care we are called as ministers uniquely to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without apology, without watering it down, to preach the whole counsel of God as he has revealed and entrusted it to us. And we are held to a high level of accountability, a high standard before God. Both Pastor Fisher and I understand that. We know that. And every day we seek to be faithful to do that, as every minister of the gospel should. It is a gospel, which really is a reference to the whole of the scriptures where the gospel is spelled out, that we are entrusted with and we are to be found faithful in it. It's not just to ministers that this gospel or this truth or this faith, this body of truth, the Old and New Testament, is committed and entrusted. 
It's committed to our missionaries. So as you pray for our missionaries, pray that they would be faithful to proclaim and present the word of God as it is, not to water it down as we've seen in so many previous generations perhaps where the whole focus of missionary service has changed from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that men are sinners in need of a savior and that God has provided that savior in Jesus Christ to social gospel, the work of social work in the fields, helping people, which is important and we understand that. But it is not the gospel. That is what has been entrusted. So pray for your missionaries that they would be found faithful in everything. And then, of course, it's committed to us individually, to which we are held also to a high standard of accountability and faithfulness to proclaim God's word to friends and family, to all of those around us, co-workers, to whomever we speak to, to be faithful in doing that. I think especially of Christian parents as they seek to instruct their children, something that God's word, both Old and New Testament, highlights very, very much and very highly. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary says this, is there any advantage to having Christian parents? So I speak to you who are children being raised in a Christian home. Is there any advantage to you as being raised in a Christian home? He says this, yes, in every way there is. The advantage that the children of Christian parents have is that they have this teaching, this word of God, these oracles of God, this learning, this knowledge, this information. What a great example and advantage. They ought to come, he goes on to say, to repentance long before anyone else because they are under the sound of it all. They are hearing it. They are familiar with it. And it ought to bring them to conviction. Praise God when he brings our children to faith in himself at an early age that they may grow and never know a day where they did not love Christ. But pray for all of our covenant children who have been exposed to these things from infancy, from their youngest years, that God may powerfully bless that word, bring them to conviction and repentance and cause them to come and profess faith in Jesus Christ. Even as I said this week in the communion letter, that they might come examining themselves, that they are in the faith, and come to the table as they make that public profession of faith. And think of our Sunday school. We start next week. It's almost obvious that I would mention that. Think of Sunday school and the privilege we have, not just as Christian parents, but as a whole church to teach and instruct our children in the oracles of God. Does anyone who comes to Sunday school have an advantage? Yes, they do, because they are sitting under the preaching, the teaching, the hearing of the word of God. They are hearing the oracles of God, and that gives them a great, great advantage. So Paul answers that first question, and that's the question that's going to lead to all of the things that he will then say in the following arguments that are made. And so he says, yes, the Jews have a great advantage more than anyone else because they have been given, entrusted with the very oracles, the very speech of God. Well, Paul goes on, verses 3 and 4, and deals with the question of God's faithfulness. What if, Paul writes, some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithfulness or faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Well, you can see what Paul is getting at here. The one who comes, the antagonist to Paul, presents this question, challenges him, says this. Now, Paul, we've got a problem. Great. They've been given the oracles of God. All through their history, they've had the very speech of God. Moses wrote it down. They had it. No other nation had what they had. But listen, or listen, Paul, we know their story. The whole of their story can be summarized in this way. Unfaithful. So really, what profit did they get from having the oracles of God? They were all unfaithful. Now, Paul, notice his language. What if some were unfaithful? Paul knows that not all of them were. The majority certainly were. But Paul, being very gracious here, says, what if some were unfaithful? Does that somehow mean that God's faithfulness to accomplish everything that he declares in those oracles, which include the promise of a Messiah, a salvation to come, all of that, does that negate it all and call God's faithfulness into question? Notice Paul's answer. Paul's answer is very clear. It is not in verse 4. If you have a translation that says, God forbid, that's not the right translation because the word God is not in the text. It's not God forbid, although there's an argument to be made generally that you can translate it, but that's really a paraphrase. By no means is helpful. That's a, certainly a helpful translation. May it never be is probably even more literal. That's an impossible suggestion. That is unthinkable. And no impression here, but if you happen to be a Princess Bride fan, it's inconceivable. Inconceivable. That God would be found unfaithful because of the faithlessness of the people to whom he has entrusted these oracles. You see his progression of his argument. He's dealing with these people who are coming after him regarding everything he said in chapter 2. He's anticipating their arguments. He's saying, you cannot call God's faithfulness into question here. And so his simple statement, by no means that's impossible, unthinkable, inconceivable, that that would be true. And what does he quote? What does he quote to prove from the Old Testament, from the very oracles of God, that this is indeed the case? It's unthinkable. He quotes David's own prayer. And David's psalm, Psalm 51. You you know Psalm 51. You know what it is. Psalm 51 is David's prayer, his psalm that he wrote as an expression of his own repentance before God. It was after his sin with Bathsheba where we know that he also killed Uriah, her husband, to hide and protect himself. And God, in his judgment, took the child born, took that child's life. That's where we have the phrase that I referenced earlier, I will not go to him, or he will not come to me, but I will go to him. Okay, that's David's expression of faith. But after Nathan came, no doubt it took a long time for David to come around. And no doubt, David was struggling at times with what God had determined to do, as Nathan told him. 
And David, in one writer's sort of summary of what he's doing, says, I I once, Lord, I once may have thought that you were wrong, that, God, you were wrong in how you were judging me for this sin. But now I know that you are right, and your judgments are righteous altogether, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul, as is so often the case in the New Testament, quotes from the Septuagint, it's slightly different, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Our faithlessness does not negate God's faithfulness. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. When we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so he quotes from David and he says, essentially, the Lord of all the earth can only do what he has promised to do, and he will do it all. He is faithful to accomplish every word he has spoken, because our God cannot lie. You see his argument, you see how he deals with those who come after him here challenging God's faithfulness. But it doesn't end here. In fact, it gets a little more complicated. There are commentators who say that these eight verses are, in the book of Romans, the most difficult verses to understand in the whole book. I didn't tell you in that beginning because I wanted you to pay attention as we went along. I hope you're following. They are difficult to really get at what Paul is saying. He's anticipating arguments. He's creating these, uh, op- this opposition, these enemies of the cross of Christ. He's anticipating what they're going to say. He's dealing with it up front so he can put them all to rest. And how he does it is very, very important, as we'll see in a moment. The third argument, beginning in verse 5 and through verse 6, is the question of God's righteousness. So follow along. Here's the argument. If our unrighteousness, our faithlessness, our lacking in obedience to what God has revealed in his oracles, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, which David just said, My sin, I know I've sinned against you, and you only have I sinned so that you may be justified in the judgments that you have pronounced. That's what David said. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, well, what shall we say to that? That God is unrighteousness, unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Same words as verse 4, by no means, inconceivable, for then how could God judge the world? Now, this is a very important thing that Paul does here. He says, listen, I understand the question. You're, You're saying that man's unfaithfulness, his faithlessness, especially given the oracles of God, has actually exalted God's righteousness. David just acknowledged God is just and righteous in what he does with David judging him the way that he does. If that is true, then why can't we understand and say, 
Well, if God just allows this unrighteousness to be so that his righteousness is exalted, how can he possibly find us guilty? It's a game, they say. God allows unrighteousness, and yet he judges them, and he is righteous because of it. Keep that process going. God's righteousness goes up higher and higher. Well, is God then fair? He's using us as pawns, it seems. He's using us as pawns. And, of course, he says, by no, by no means. And all he says is this. How could God then judge the world? If what you say is true, primarily the Jew, the religious Jew, if what you're saying here is true, Paul, then God has no right to judge me. Because this is all a game that his righteousness would be exalted by our unrighteousness. How can he turn around then and find us guilty of anything? This is a serving a sort of an end purpose in his mind. And, and so we find fault with him. We say he's unrighteous to judge us. Paul says, no. Here's the truth. God will judge the world. That's what he's going to do. He simply declares God will judge the world. It's what Paul said in Acts chapter 17 when we opened the service. The times of ignorance are gone. God has committed judgment to one man. That judgment is set. God will judge the world. There is no unrighteousness in God and in his judgments. What David said is actually true. God is righteous in his judgments. He's not playing a game. He will hold us accountable and give to each man according to his works. We're helping him to shine, they say, with all the more through our unrighteousness. We find fault in what he's doing. Paul says no. How can he then judge the world? He will judge the world. That's a truth. That's an undeniable truth, Paul says, revealed in the oracles of God. He will judge the world. If he can't judge you, religious Jew, he can't judge the Gentiles either. But listen, he's judging the world, including you. It's almost, and we're going to get to it at the end, it's almost what he does with Job. And Job's response is the right one. He puts his hand over his mouth. And he says, there's nothing I can say, nothing. There's nothing I can speak. We dare not call into question the righteousness of God as those who are opposed to what Paul says here are doing. But Paul does in verse 7 through 8, one final thing. And he takes the same idea of six or uh, 5 and 6 and he makes it personal. He sort of brings it down to a personal level. And the question here is not of his faithfulness, not of his righteousness, although it's related. It's of his glory. It's of his glory. And Paul makes it personal. He takes the same issue. Look at what he does in verse 7. But if through my lie, now the lie here is not a particular thing he's said in this passage. The lie is an example of sin. If when I lie, my sin God's truth abounds to his glory. That's the argument from the previous section. Why am I then still being judged as a sinner? It's the same argument. But he takes it further. And why not continue to do evil that good may come? And the good is God's glory being exalted. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You see, God's glory is called into question here, how God receives glory. 
And Paul says, listen, what if me personally, what if I just keep on sinning? Won't that abound to his glory more and more? Why then would God judge me? Notice what Paul does. He doesn't enter into any fancy argument here. He says, listen, their condemnation for thinking this way about God and his character, their condemnation is absolutely just. They deserve what they get. They have revealed a heart of contempt to God and a denial of who God has revealed himself to be in his speech and the oracles he has given to the Jews primarily. Now, if you're familiar with Romans, you know, you know that this argument will come up later. But why does it appear here? And why does he deal with it so quickly when in Romans 5 and Romans 6, he takes a fairly large section to deal with it? The answer is very simple. In Romans 5 and 6, the issue is justification by grace alone through faith alone. That's where he is in chapter 5 and 6. He's going to make the link in chapter 6 to sanctification, our ongoing pursuit of holiness in this life. The issue in chapter 6 is that doctrine and how the doctrine of justification leads to sanctification. It's an abuse of that doctrine. And so he takes time to spend in chapter 6, remember, being Union, in union with Christ, baptized with Christ, into his death, raised in his resurrection, how that impacts our life and how we live. That's the argument in chapter 6. The issue here is God's character. The issue here is God's character, who he is. They've called his faithfulness, they've called his righteousness into question. Now they're questioning out, or now they're questioning how God receives glory. And that is why Paul deals with it so clearly and so succinctly and so finely. Their condemnation in, in this evil expression is, in fact, just. They've revealed their hearts. So it's a different view. The same kind of issue, same sort of antinomianism, which is against the law, if God's glory increases where our sin increases, why shouldn't we continue to sin so his glory increases, right? That's antinomianism. That's uh, being against the law, against obedience to God's law. Paul will deal with that later. But here he says their condemnation is absolutely just. Well, I hope as we went through these verses, for the sake of time, we're just going to proceed to conclude and give three very quick points of application. I hope you see that before he summarizes and gets through with this whole argument, 118 to 320, he had to deal with these objections. He had to address them because they were being spoken of. Paul says it, slanderously charging them with this kind of antinomianism. Now, after this, he's going to summarize it. And what he does in the next uh, several verses, 9 through 20, we'll look at next Sunday evening. What he does is very important. Because what he does is he summarizes everything he just said and shows how all men are guilty before God. And what is he used to do that? The oracles of God entrusted to the people. He's going to use that. So three things very quickly. I think we learn... Before we come to the Lord's table, three things. We learn how to deal with arguments. 
Sometimes there is a place for us simply to respond with what God has said. Not to get into the details of arguments. That's what Paul does several times here. He just succinctly and directly deals with the argument. By no means unthinkable, inconceivable that one would say that. Their condemnation is just. There are times where all we need to do is simply declare the truth of God. I love what John Murray says in his commentary about this very point. He says this, Paul appeals to the fact, the absolute fact of universal judgment. It is a given, Paul says, and he does not proceed to uh, prove it. He accepts it as an ultimate datum of revelation, and he confronts the objection of verse 5 with this fact. About the certainty of God's judgment, there can be no dispute. Once the judgment is accepted as a certainty, then all such objection as is implied in verses 5 and 7 and 8 fall away to the ground. The apostle's answer in this case illustrates what must always be true when we are dealing with the ultimate facts of revelation. These facts are ultimate, and any argument must be content with categorical affirmation. The answer to objections is proclamation. I love that phrase. The answer to objections is proclamation. By this he means the simple and straightforward proclamation of the truth of God's word. Now, sometimes you may just have to declare that and move on to other subjects and simply say the fact of God's judgment of the world is an accepted fact, no argument, and move to something else. So that's a very important, I think, and helpful insight as to how we deal today with arguments that we face. Secondly, the charge of antinomianism, which we saw in the last two sections. Again, Morton Lloyd-Jones writing in his commentary, and, and I found this really striking. He said, listen, the, the true test of gospel preaching of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ is that you will sometimes and maybe often be charged with the sin of antinomianism. Why? Because we preach the free grace of God and not works. We are not teaching people to be good and not to commit certain acts, to live a good life and to be good at all or to do all. What we do say is that those things flow out of new life you can never save yourself by your good works. We preach a gospel of free grace, that God has done it all in Jesus Christ, and your works and mine add nothing and mean nothing. That preaching often receives the charge, well, you must be against the law. You must be against doing what is right. I think you've been here long enough to know that we love the law of God, and we preach the law of God. We delight in the law of God, and we call people to obedience in the law of God. We cannot be charged with antinomianism, but we often will be. So be aware of that. And then finally, there is a place where God often brings us in our lives. 
especially in the days in which we live when so many people seem to be deconstructing their faith, leaving the faith that they once professed? What is our response to that? What must our response be? I think the phrase here that Paul writes, so helpful, so encouraging in verse 4, is very helpful. And it's the place I think we have to come as we deal with people who just simply reject the truth as we present it to them. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. No matter what people say, no matter how they attack you, no matter how they seek to undermine what it is you believe, you must come to that solid foundation that Paul sets out here. Let God, through his oracles revealed and entrusted to us, let him be true and every other man a liar. Let us pray. Our Father, as we prepare now to come to this table, which is a reminder of the gospel, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we would declare those very words that here we can say, let God be true and every man a liar. Because here you have revealed to us in the picture of this table, the wonderful gospel of your grace to sinners like us, that you have redeemed us not by our works and obedience, but you have redeemed us by the giving of your one and only son for our sake. Would you bless this means of grace, even as we have asked your blessing upon the preaching of your word and the hearing of it, that by these means we would be nourished and strengthened and built up in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would the elders come forward and take your place here in the front?